1: Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am extremely excited today to welcome Dr. George Warner to the show. Dr. Warner is Research Associate in the Study of West Asian Religions at the Center for Religious Studies at Ruhr Universität Bochum in Germany. Today we're discussing his new book, The Words of the Imams, A Sheikh Asaduk, and the Development of Twelver Shi'i Hadith Literature. Which was published in 2022 with I. B. Taurus. Dr. Warner. Welcome to the show.
0: Yeah, hi Adam. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It was actually published at the end of 2021, but um, is that? A, I don't think that matters. It's it's published now.
1: Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> yes.
0: So, could you speak about the genesis of this book? Yeah, sure. I mean, it it, um, it started life as as my PhD thesis, um, which which feels like a long time ago i um i i i was very interested in in religion and narrative and you know the book doesn't seem to have ended up having that much to do with narrative but yeah I, that was my sort of core interest and i actually wrote an mphil thesis on babylonian myths and um but i was also um, doing islamic studies and i just found the the sunni shi'i dynamic fascinating because of this um, this dynamic of, of contesting narratives and and whom the ummah owes loyalty to and what sort of community the ummah should be and all of these coming together and underlying that of course you have hadith which um, which is where these these stories are found but it, it's 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 not just a, a neat story it's this endless fragmentary endlessly shifting and disputed um Textual corpus and and how that sort of fits together to to um, you know, to spawn these ideas of legitimacy and so on and so forth. I found um, I found terribly interesting. Um, and and meanwhile, I'd been very lucky during my undergrad to spend a year in Damascus, and I spent most of that time in Sayda Zaynab, which is a suburb of Damascus. Um, so named because in the middle of it is a shrine to to Zaynab. Bint Ali, the, the granddaughter of the Prophet Muhammad, and um, it's very much a a center of of Shiism and Shi'i learning in Damascus. And I was really fortunate to be able to to sit in on classes, sort of in and, and in the environs of of these seminaries there. And some very generous people um, spent their time teaching me and others, um, among other things, about Shi'i hadith. So that's that's where I got. I guess in, engaged with this this corpus in particular, and yeah, ended up writing a, a PhD about it, which subsequently became the basis for this book.
1: And what audience did you have in mind for this book?
0: Oh, um, I, I mean, <coughs> anyone who's interested in well, Shi'i hadith or Shiism more broadly, or hadith more broadly, or Sheikh Sadour, who is. Uh, yeah a pivotal figure in the early history of shia hadith um any any of the words on on the cover more or less i mean publishers publishers are very good i wanted to call it you know memetics of hujja or something and have a picture of a table on on the cover but but no that was overruled and i was told no one would buy it so yeah it's hadith those i mean also anyone interested in in Shi'i law or jurisprudence, or indeed adab literature gets quite a lot of space in there too. Yeah, those broad areas. Um, Obviously, it's written for an academic audience. I'd like to think that it would be of interest to to general readers with an interest in Islam, but that may be a self-serving delusion. I I don't know. Um, Yes. Yes. yeah, you you asked earlier about the cover, which which um, which I was really pleased to find. I found it completely by accident. It's um, it's an image of the the angel Gabriel and the angel of ice and fire. It's it's yeah, and you've just got on the right hand side Burakh, um the head and front legs of Burach on whose back Mohammed is seated. But you can't see Muhammad. Um, yes, and anyway, uh, I. Sp- I- i don't think we should give it away um, if, if you read the book then then the significance of the image will will become apparent um, yes
1: uh, could you introduce listeners a little bit to the shi hadith tradition
0: yeah a little bit um, um, sure it, i mean it, it, like the um like the sunni hadith tradition it's 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 very long and it's very complex and um and so i should really say to start with that really I, I can only talk here about the early end of of the shia hadith hadith tradition um which is very much what the book what the book is about um and also uh, yeah on top of that it's it's really the the 12 hadith tradition ismailis and zaidis have their own interactions with hadith um which uh yeah would be a very different conversation but uh yeah um I mean what's what's interesting about Twelver Shiism is that rather unlike Zaydism and Ismailism, which which have which engage in Hadith in different ways, but but yeah, Zaydism often engages with with the broader Sunni corpus, and, and Ismailism has its own thing going on. Shiism is distinct by having really a parallel tradition of Hadith literature to the kind of Sunni tradition, really from yeah, before the 10th century, when when Sheikh saduq is writing, and really what what distinguishes this tradition from the Sunni tradition above all others is is the figure of the Imam. Now, that's most obvious in the fact that if you open a book of Shi'i, twelve Shi'i hadith, you will find. That some hadith go back to the Prophet, but other hadith just go back to one of the twelve imams. Instead, the imams, or indeed Muhammad's daughter Fatima, so the imams are given equivalent authority to Muhammad, and so the hadith can go back to them. Um, but there is there is a context to this, which which goes back into the into the, the ninth century of, of the Common Era, the, the third Hijri century, and and the the great sweep of debates about. Authority and the authority of scholarship that um, that surged through the the Islamic intellectual context at that time, and you have debates about the the worth of reason and revelation, and have, you have the gropes of the growth of of theological schools and and legal schools and the rest of it. And it, in the middle of this is is often a concern to to access the, the knowledge and the words of the Prophet himself. And this is obviously the impulse that Hadith fulfills. And, and what the person of the imam does is an idea that's developed specifically by what are called then the imami Shia, who, who end up mostly being the Twelver Shia and the Ismaili Shia, but yeah, we're focusing on the Twelvers the idea of the imam becomes a particular way of of accessing the knowledge of the prophet how do we know the, what the prophet said well we we ask the imam who is well the the inspired and guaranteed successor of the prophet who can then tell us a exactly what the prophet would have done and b speak with with an equivalent authority to the prophet on matters of of theology and law and and this really begins to overlap in interesting and and complex ways with with the idea of Hadith in general because, of course... With certainly the Sunni hadith tradition and the hadith tradition in its genesis, the idea is: well, how do we know what the prophet said? We we remember. We ask someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who who can tell us, um, give us an eyewitness account. So, so in a sense, the idea of the imam, as as the Imamis and Twelvers have it, is is a rival epistemology to that of hadith. Nevertheless, the the two do continue to overlap in imami Shi'i thought, and and we can talk about a bit more about that later but where the pivotal point in all of this is is the occultation the the death of the 11th imam and and the the inauguration of the 12th imam who is the hidden imam at that point which happens in, in 874 the situation changes they no longer have an imam who they can straightforwardly go to and ask questions and so suddenly the idea of of recollections of the imam's words in text, uh, that is to say in Hadith, that becomes much, much more important. And it is precisely when the 11th imam dies, uh, towards the tail end of the 9th century and into the 10th, that really a a large scale systematic 12 shi'i and Hadith literature grows up really again articulated in in response to this question of what is the relationship between the living authority of the imam who we can just directly ask questions to to and meanwhile the the idea of the authority of the imam as as recorded and routinized in text as as time goes on it all settles down, and, and as I said before, the Shi'i hadith tradition sort of, well ends up just being, a, as it were, a, a parallel hadith literature to the Sunni one, which often asks the same sort of questions. But it does have this very particular genesis, as, as I've just described, with a really rather different set of questions um, that are afoot. when by the to- by the time Sunnis start thinking seriously about hadith literature. The prophet is dead and gone. That's that's a, not an open question. Whereas for the Imami Shia, the presence of the Imam is still an open question. The question of shouldn't we have authority right here, right now? We shouldn't need to have to remember it and use texts in this way. That that still haunts the Imami um, Hadith corpus in in its genesis. Um, yes, I I think that. Covers yeah the, the broad outline. I mean, it, again, it's it's a it's a long tradition, same as all the other ones. But but those are the things hovering around at the early end of the tradition, which which is when um, Sadiq is active. So that's what I'm writing about.
1: In the introduction, you write that you want to rehabilitate the hadith compiler as an author.
0: What does that mean? What does it mean? Um, okay, so um, uh, I mean the kind of frame term for this is really. Compilation criticism, which which I'll come back to in a moment. I guess yeah, we should start by saying what a compiler is. Um, a compiler is someone who authors compilations, and a compilation is is a collection of of stuff that other people have ostensibly said or or written. And so, a compiler is it. You know, it's like an anthology. It's bringing those things together. A classic example of a compilation is is a hadith compilation where you're not reading the words of the compiler himself. This isn't a book of, of Sadduk telling you what he thinks. It's a book of the words of the imams and the prophets that he has, of the prophet rather, that he has compiled, that he has brought together. <clears throat> um, and so the figure of the compiler, you know, appears somewhat in the background to this as a transmitter, as as a facilitator, as, as a compiler, and rather often this leads and historically this has very much led to compilers and the authorial agency of compilers being ignored because readers, both Muslim readers who are interested in asking questions of, of faith and and non Muslim historians, and again hadith compilations are a very good example because why do people read hadith compilations because they want to know what the prophet said they want to know what the imam said and they want to know whether or not this is accurate so the again the compiler is is somewhat marginalized and is only seen to be valuable to the extent that she is either effectively or ineffectively transmitting the words of the prophet and the imams and really the And yeah, alongside that, there's a kind of an assumption that, well, there's there's a lack of focus on them, but also an assumption that there's really not that much going on. They're either successful in transmitting it properly or they're unsuccessful and they're not, and that's all there is to it. And really what what I wanted to do, um, what this work tries to do is to bring the focus back and really just just ask of, of hadith compilers the same kinds of questions that we we ask undergraduate students to ask of authors so what is the compiler trying to do with this book and how are they trying to do it and also alongside that really taking seriously the sophistication of the compiler that what they might be trying to do and the way a about which they're trying to do it, that might be quite complex and there might be all sorts of things going on and they might be trying to do all sorts of different things in different ways. So yeah, it's compilation criticism as in applying a lens of, of, of serious criticism to to com- compilations and thus taking their authors seriously. Should, this, is not, this is not something I invented. Um, it's, it's not an entirely new idea, but it, it is something that um, you know, I wanted to push it a bit further in some particular directions um so yeah firstly i i do set out in my introduction a a framework for for looking at hadith compilations specifically through through um through compilation criticism and the kind of questions that one might want to ask and yeah beyond that um this has all sorts of values in different places i mean just you know within the context of um of Abbasid era Islamic literature. There are all sorts of, of yeah. compilation literatures, but it, it's certainly of particular historical use when you're looking at people like Sheikh Saduq, for, for whom almost everything they write is compendia of hadith. So if you want to know what Saduq thinks, Compilation criticism is, is the only way you're going to get there. He's not just writing exactly what he thinks in his own prose. You need to find ways of looking beyond the compiled hadith um, to, to do that. So it has um, an obvious utility in reconstructing this particular bit of um, of Islamic intellectual history. Um, so that was the first thing I was trying to do with it. And, yeah, second is just a question of scale um, really trying to well s- apply it to some degree to to the whole oeuvre of a particular author. Saduk is, is good in as much as he has a a large and diverse oeuvre, but it's it's well of a size that's that's manageable enough in um in a PhD project. You know, it's 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 thousands of pages rather than uh, um yeah hundreds of thousands of pages, and um. Yeah, on the similar concern of scale, to really in the second half of the book, I um, I really take two large hadith compendia and attempt to read them systematically, cover to cover, and so really quite forensically try and uncover the the, the these these structures, the authorial strategies that are at work in them, and I, I guess we can talk about that later when we talk about the the second half of the book. Um, yeah, so that's. Uh, that's compilation criticism. That's what I'm, I'm trying to do with it.
1: And you've already touched on this, but could you maybe expand on what the world Sheikh Asadog was living in and why you call him a transitional figure?
0: Yeah, he's, he's very much a transitional figure. Um, that's one of the reasons it was fun to write about him. So uh, Sheikh Asadog dies in, in 991 the end of the 10th century and he's active he lives a relatively long life so he's active from the middle of that century and this is important because in the middle of the 10th century two vitally important things happen for for the imami shi'i um yeah i should just clarify this now when i say imami shi'i i mean twelve shi'i it's yeah kind of more accurate at this stage to call them imami shi'i because that's what they call themselves but yeah that's imami is the people who believe in 12 imams that needed to be said um yeah so in the middle of the 10th century so when sadduk begins his career two vitally important historical events happen to really shape the imami shia community now the first is is the beginning of the greater occultation i've already mentioned that the the 11th imam dies in 874 and so from then on you've got a hidden imam the 12th imam but for many decades, the hidden Imam still has an emissary, someone who is supposedly still in direct communication with him and who can in turn be in communication with the wider Shi'i community. And so there, there still is a connection there. However, in 941, the last of these emissaries dies. And from then on, it's the start of what is called the greater occultation, where there is no direct access, as far as the vast majority of, of 12 Shi'is believe. Um, there's, there's a complete cut off there. And that is clearly a trans- transformative moment for the the Amami community in all sorts of ways, in terms of how the community is organised, in terms of of how authority is organised. Now that the chief linchpin of authority has 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 literally disappeared, and yeah, for reasons I've already touched on, it's it's nowhere more transformative than with regard to questions of hadith, because now there is no living imam, nor is there an emissary of the hidden, hidden imam. So if you want to know what the imam said, hadith are the only way you're going to get there. So this, again, Saduk starts his career at, at this seismic moment in, in terms of the the shape of the 12 a community and their relation to hadith literature. Uh, so that's one transformation. The second transformation, which happens almost at exactly the same time, is the arrival of the Buhayhids. Another fun point of terminology. Some people call them the Buyids, Some people call them the Buhayhids. I do know why, and and Theodor Noldecker wrote an article on why, so we all know why, but um, yeah, some people say buyids, some people say Buhayhid. I've written Buwehid in the book. I may som- sometimes say Buyid because it's e- easy to say, but they're the same people. Anyway, so the Buhayhids, they are a... Um, uh, uh, well, they end up being a, a, a set of dynasties, but they are essentially, um, yes, a bunch of warriors from around the Caspian Sea in Iran, and they are immensely successful to the point where in 945, they capture Baghdad, the Abbasid capital. Now, the context of this is sort of a century of the dwindling power of the Abbasid caliphate. The, the caliphs have ceased to have any real political power and, and yes, uh, polities that were once under their dominion are now sort of loyal only in name only but what with the buyid capture of baghdad we now have a point where where the abbasid capital at the seat of the caliphate has been taken over so there's a new kind of test and indeed a humiliation of the power of the caliphate now the buyids yeah their relationship with the abbasid caliphate is a whole other story but they do not depose the caliph and so the political aspirations of of a Sunni Abbasid Caliph in some sense remain. But nevertheless, the most important thing about the Buyids for our purposes is that they are in some sense Shi'i or Shi'i leaning. They're a bunch of Dalamite mercenaries, so asking exactly what they believed is, is perhaps a yeah, fruitless question. But they are friendly to Shi'ism and to Shi'is, and so really in almost an Im- unprecedented way. Shiism becomes enfranchised in, in the heartlands of um of the Abbasid dominions, not only in Baghdad itself, but in these many other really important cities, which are great centers of, of yeah, intellectual activities such as Rai, such as Khum, um such as uh, um yes, other places that I currently can't think of. Yes. Um, so Shi'ism is newly enfranchised, Shi'is have access to sent the centres of power and, and the centres of, of intellectual ferment in a way that they haven't before, they're much less excluded than they have been, um, to the point, and, and this has really profound consequences to the point where, um, just as people talk about pre-occultation and post-occultation, it's increasingly common in the study of Shi'ism in this era to differentiate post buwayhid Shi'ism from pre buwayhid Shi'ism. Um, uh, yeah, the the key changes again coming from this enfranchisement and access to the centre of power is is that she is really are under pressure to, well they have both the opportunity to to deal on an equal footing with other groups in a way they haven't before, and that creates pressure on them to to be able to converse with these groups and and one consequence of that is that some more exclusivist ideas get slightly turned down in in imami-Shiism in the Buyid period. Shi'is are a bit less rude about Omar and and, ideas that were floating around, such as the potential alteration of the Quran, get get fairly squashed in the Buyid period. So again, meeting other groups in a way where they can have a conversation, but just as importantly in terms of the intellectual frameworks and institutions that they're working with, Buyid era Imami Shiism gets routinized in a way that that is much more conversant with the intellectual norms of of other larger groups. So in terms of how they talk about theology, how they talk about law, they're not Giving the same conclusions and the same doctrines as other groups, but th- they are sh- now sharing a discursive framework. And this is also true of Hadith. So they have to make sure that when they're talking about Isnads, when they're talking about the, the reliability of a Hadith and so on and so forth, in the Buwehid period, in this new intellectual ferment and newly connected Imami Shi'ism, um, has a much more dense conversation with the pre existing discursive norms of. Of what what becomes Sunni Islam. So, uh, yeah, we again we have these two really transformational events, both happening at exactly the same time in the middle of the 10th century, and thus at the start of Saduk's career. So he really represents, and is by far the most, um, yeah, the represent. He, he represents the first generation of scholars who live in this new environment, and his his surviving corpus is by far the largest single surviving corpus of an imami author from that generation. So he is uniquely placed to shed light upon it. Um, And yeah, just to recap, the the questions that are reinvigorated and newly asked in this period are so central to what Sadduk writes about and how he deals with Hadith in terms of the role of the scholar in in the imami community, how intellectual systems and specifically... Um, hadith scholarship should be systematized, and and how it should be justified in the face of of other groups with with whom a Sadiq needs needs to be in dialogue. Um, yeah, so no, it, it really is a, a transformative moment. I suppose I should also talk about place um, because that matters to Sadiq, in particular the dynamic between Qum and Baghdad. Um, Yeah, I go into this at some length in the book, but it's important to know that a sadduk is is called a representative of of the Qummi school of imami thought. Now you can argue about the word school and to what extent this is an institution or rather just more of an an intellectual center of gravity. But anyway, a intellectual center of gravity is very much in Qum. And this is important because because it is a different center of gravity, that of Baghdad, that ultimately wins out in subsequent subsequent 12 Ashia intellectual uh, traditions. It is the Baghdadi school represented by people like Sheikh Al-Mufid, a generation later than Saduk, and after him, people like Sharif al murtadha and Sheikh Al-Tusi. This Baghdadi school is 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 really what later 12 Shiism owes its its roots to in terms of its particular synthesis of, of a martesli theology and a certain view on usul of now these people still talk to Saduk and they read his books but Saduk does represent a different strand of thought a, a strand of thought based in whom which which thinks about these questions the questions to do with hadith criticism amongst other things in a somewhat different way so i do make an effort in the book to towards reconstructing what this this more or less yeah this now lost Kumi school looks looks like and, and how Sado is is different in in the way he does things to to the Baghdadi school that ultimately wins out. Um, yes.
1: Could you maybe also situate him between uh, uh, between his father and then the people who come after him?
0: Yeah, sure. um the um so. Seduk's father is is another prominent member of of um, well another <coughs> another surviving remnant of the Khummi school that we can s- still see. His his father really only leaves a very small remnant of extant texts that we can still read. Um, but really, yeah, I mean, I get, as I as I look at the Khummi school and and how that fits together, I Saduk and his father are the chief axis through which I do that in. Um, in contrast to, to Kulaini, who is a you know a giant of early Shia Hadith, and he is a contemporary of a Suduk's father, so a generation before Suduk. Um, And Kulaini, yeah, I mean, we we talk about yeah Baghdad. And Rai is also another city which is part of this picture, and, and both Saduk and Kulaini spend a long time in Rai. But, yeah, in terms of where they end up being identified with, Kulaini is very much picked up by the Baghdadi school. Saduk in terms of his intellectual roots remains very much situated in Qum. So um yeah, I, I do try and sketch it out in terms of, of this Qummi genealogy of, of Sadduk and his father, which differs from differs from differs from a um, genealogy which stretches through Mufid to people like Ibn Qulaway, a generation before him, to to Al-Kholeini. Um yeah, I, talk a bit more about the details of that um, in a moment, I suppose. So
1: how does the book's approach to Sheikha Asaduk challenge some common assumptions about Hadith literature?
0: Well, um, yeah, gosh, hopefully more than one way. Um, I guess I'd have to recap the point about authorial agency first and really just, yeah, uh, everything I said. Above all, just the assertion that Hadith literature and the um, what Hadith compiler is doing in Hadith literature is worthy of, you know, giving it the benefit of the doubt that there is something complicated going on there. There are so many books about Ghazali, and that's fine. I have nothing against Ghazali. Well, actually, I do, but let's pretend that I don't. I have nothing against Ghazali. Um, but Ghazali, you know, he's a very important figure, and lots of people write books about him. One of the reasons people write books about him is that Ghazali articulates his subjectivity in a way we we relate to. He talks about himself. He writes an intellectual biography. And so people are interested in, okay, who is this person? We can speak to him. We can see what he's thinking. How does he change his mind? What does he think about this? And so on and so forth. We should give Hadith compilers the benefit of the doubt. They're doing all that too. They don't do it in as recognizable a way. They do it through the media of of compilation. but, But yeah, that... The complicated stuff is all going on, and yeah, at a very basic level, just because a hadith compiler puts a hadith in a compilation, that does not mean that's what he or she thinks. Um, just because a Saduk has a hadith saying that, that the imam said this, that that I don't know um, God has has seven key attributes or whatever that's not the state the same as a direct creedal statement from the author himself there's there's more going on so yeah um just recapping that point about authorial um agency but with, with regard to hadith specifically um this is very much related to what i do try and pick away at a little which is that this this dichotomy between rationalists and traditionists or traditionalists this key dynamic over how much weight is given to text versus how much weight is given to to human reason as as exercised independently of text now this is this is a real thing this is something that that absolutely there is no question um authors are quite explicit about this is something that really matters to them this variable they articulate their positions in opposition to others explicitly on the basis of of we give more weight to text, they give more weight to reason, or the other way around. However, the fact that it is real does not detract from the fact that we need to be careful with it, because there are some really unhelpful connotations of these terms that can really seep into how we look at At Muslim thinkers in this period, and in particular thinkers on the traditionist end of the spectrum, that are really unhelpful. Um, Most, yeah, all really are revolving around the again the simple assertion is that yeah, it's fine to call the ones who use independent reason in opposition to text more rationalists. That does not mean that traditionalists are not rational just because they. Are suspicious of the independent exercise of human reason just because they they are traditionist in the sense that they rely on traditions, they rely on texts more. That does not mean that the so-called rationalists are doing all the thinking. Um, it, traditionists are, are doing plenty of rational thinking as well. They're doing all sorts of rational things in terms of how they interact with 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 their text. Um, I guess a, so. Yeah, I, I really try and. and and complicate this, again, not wishing to say that the rationalist traditionist axis isn't real, but just just complicating it for the better, I hope. And, and a good example of this, I think, is the, the dynamic I, I mentioned previously between Qum and Baghdad, between these different schools of thought in the early 12 Shi'i tradition. In brief, the Baghdadi school is seen to be more rationalist. And the, the, one of the main reasons for that is that they leave treatises. Um, it is with with the Baghdadi school, more or less, that, that the tradition of imami, well, dialectic theology to a certain extent, but certainly usul al fiqh systematic jurisprudence, that really, well, in a sense, is seen to start with the Baghdadi school in as much as they're the first people who write treatises about jurisprudence, about Usul of Tha. Um, That is to say that people associated with with Qum, like Saduk, Saduk. it's not just that we don't have any treatises surviving. There's no record that he and his fellows ever wrote them. They do not seem to want to write their jurisprudence down. This has led some people to conclude that they don't have any, or that it's very simple and just they simple-mindedly read hadith and do what they're told. And this is what I try to argue against: that um that there is a a jurisprudence there. It just requires the patience to to unpick it from looking at just how a Saduk interacts with hadith. And, and there's no question that he for example on questions of of Isnar criticism um asaduk we know wrote a bunch of books on the science of of rijal of 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 yeah um categorizing different transmitters and how reliable they are there's no question that he is he is addressing these these complex dis- discursive questions of hadith criticism but But meanwhile, it is also true that that he doesn't actually write any treatises about the broader questions of of Usul al-Fiqh. And what I argue, looking at him and his father in comparison to people based out of Baghdad, is that they're interested in Isnards. They are doing isnad criticism, but they are worried about it. And they're worried about it because this is still the middle of, and in his father's case, the early 10th century in the case of a Suduk's father, there is still an emissary of the hidden imam walking around. And in Sadduk's time, the those events are still within living memory. And so there is a real worry about, doesn't this ruin everything? We are supposed to have an imam who has all our answers. For the past hundred years, we have been rude about other groups and saying, those poor fools, they have to rely on their human reason. They have to rely on memory. Memory is is terribly unreliable. They have to do these these... Sad, approximate things to try to reconstruct what Muhammad would have said, and we can just ask the imam and we win. Um, so they they use it very much as a polemical stick to beat other groups with. But then the occultation happens, and and they they have to really worry about these things as they seem ostensibly to be in the same position now as other groups and having to rely on hadith because the imam's no longer there. To cut a long story short. This means that they're worried when they talk about isnad criticism. There's an extent to which even if they're doing it and they they don't want to foreground the fact that they're doing it, it almost becomes a point of rhetoric. And, and this is a point of difference with people like a Sheikh al-Mufid in Baghdad. This is just an example of how they are thinking about this. They have Complex rational reasons that explain why they want to rely on hadith, why they are approaching these texts the way they are. Indeed, they have rational reasons to explain why they're not writing great big treatises of usul al fiqh. It doesn't mean that they're not rational, it just means that th- they're doing things in a different way. So, yeah, again, yeah, trying to reconstruct this particular historical question of, of what does Qummi, Imami, Hadith scholarship looked like in the 10th century, but also trying to complicate this, this rationalist traditionist dichotomy a bit, hopefully. Um, and there was something else I wanted to say. Oh yes. Um, so another, that's one way of, of um, challenging assumptions about Hadith. The other, that's what the question was. And, um, and the other way, um, one principle, other way I try and do that is just exploring well, testing the limits of what hadith can be about, and in particular, this pertains to adab literature. Um, adab literature is well. And before we get into adab literature, it's just worth saying a great thing about Saduq, which is that he he writes a lot of books. Um, he, he um, I think it's eighteen. Gosh, I have to. So I almost. The book almost went to print with the wrong number in, and this is why now I'm worried. I think it's 18. Um, he wrote, "I'm going to uh, yes." Anyway, uh, buy the book, then you'll know. Um, but I'm going to say he he wrote he has 18 extant works which survived, and um, and this is really splendid because um, it from the point of view of compilation criticism, this it's not just we have a, a big volume of stuff from him; it's that we can see him doing different things in different situations in in different different hadith compendia which which are trying to do different things <clears throat> and this is nowhere more apparent than in his relationship to to adab literature as i got halfway to saying adab literature is really difficult to define um but it's oh to do it very quickly it is to do with culture um adab literature is concerned to to refine the individual to, to make them a better person, to make them a more interesting person, to make them a person who's going to do better in the context of, of a courtly soiree. Um, So uh, yeah, adab literature contains things like jokes. It contains uh, adab literature is interested in poems about flowers. It's interested in philosophical aphorisms. It's interesting in, in, it's interested in curious anecdotes about sheep. Um, and again, it's it's huge and diverse and has all sorts of genres, but a, a key genre within adab literature is the compilation, the adab compendium, where all these sort of different components of, of yeah, poems about whales or what have you, are collected into these, these great big compendia. And... Yeah, this is, you know, kind of icons of, of Adab literature, people like Jahez and, and Ibn Kutayba, but it's um the Buyid period in which the sadduk writing is a real high point of Adab literature, and you have people like Abu al Tohidi and Miskaway. Um and it is often assumed, back to assumptions, it is often assumed that these hadith, these these Adab compendia are very, very different and are an altogether different literary space to hadith. Compendia to the point when you know, Adab is constructed as as outward looking, as as humanist, even as having a um, a really expansive notion of knowledge can come from anywhere and anyone. Whereas Hadith is 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 religious; it's closed; it has a, a fixed notion of where knowledge comes from, and not what knowledge should be. And it has been pointed out in recent um, times that that things are a little bit more complicated than that. And um, yeah, it's not this sort of. Uh, unworkable dichotomy between a sort of humanistic secular adab and a, and a um, religious hadith. And this is absolutely apparent in a Saduk where a number of his surviving compilations are in direct conversation with the mores, with the themes, the concerns, and the structures of adab literature. If you try and read them as, as a work of, of creedal instruction as a kind of catechismic um, manual for, for belief and practice for the faithful, they make really weird reading, and it just doesn't make sense. Why are you telling me all the ways in which chickens are like prophets, and why are you telling me the reason why the sky is called the sky? It, it um, yeah, the, these books transparently do not work as as um, as sort of manuals of law. You know, some of the books do. Some of his books, like his most famous, well, his his book that ended up in the um, sort of four books of the Shi'i Hadith canon, فخي, that's absolutely a book about fiqh telling people how to pray and fast. But other books of his are not trying to do that. They are engaging with adab literature. And this is in terms of of, of their subject matter. They're engaging in themes like, um, like friendship, but also in terms of the indirect methods of their instruction. They don't. Jo- they don't just tell you, yeah. If you want to know how to pray properly, then go to this chapter. And if you want to know the correct beliefs about God's attributes, then go to that chapter. No, it's it's this rather more fun and indirect method of instruction that Adab Compendia habitually use. So, um, luring the reader. Through putting a fun hadith th- that contains some interesting information about animals that live in swamps, and then the reader will go, ooh, that looks interesting, and then they will be lured onto the next hadith that tells them something good and improving about what they should believe about the imams. So, uh, yeah, the, the, um, yeah, I analysed these works in some detail. Um, but, yeah, the, the takeaway from it is, well, firstly, just a sadduk is... Is in dialogue with this stuff, and as such, he's in dialogue with with the centers of power. Again, this is a classic symptom of <coughs> of how the Buyid period transforms what Imami scholars end up doing. Adab literature is not much good if you work in a salt mine. It is it is you know shaped in order to give access to to cultured, courtly spaces, and and Saduk clearly is is trying to do that. Is is trying to make the imams hadith do that. This is a an intellectual scene in which encyclopedism is very much in vogue. A sadduk and his fellow imamis are standing up and saying, whatever question you have, the imam is the answer. It's this absolutist vision of where knowledge comes from. And OK, so this is adab literature. You want to know interesting facts about how whales move the imams know the answer to this too um and so yeah it's 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 bringing the imams hadith into that space and defending it which is always a concern of a sadduks, but also again in this this formative moment of imami lit- hadith literature in the aftermath of the greater occultation it's also there's a real experimental mood to this a sadduk is is seeing what hadith can do he's seeing how this new well, not quite new. That, but this this new emphasis on the imam as accessed through text. What does that mean? How does that work? How can we instruct people using the imam's hadith? Um, and yeah, it, it um, you have this this real um, extensive conversation with with adab, adab literature, which again is interesting in and of itself in learning about this particular Shi'i figure, but also hopefully sheds light on on the porosity much more generally between between different kinds of literature that we sometimes think of as as separate um, yes
1: in part two of the book you delve into two of his texts atahid and kamal ad-Din.
0: why did you choose these two um yeah sure um so this is this is uh, part two of the book, which is subtitled "Reading Asaduq," because this is where I, um, as I mentioned earlier, embark on these these close cover to cover readings of of two of two of, her, of, of hadith compendia in order to really test the limits of how to what extent can we really tease out structures of meaning that are active not just between two hadith that are next to each other, but really across the length of a whole hadith compendium over hundreds of pages. Um, And, yeah, seeing how all the different hadith in different parts of the book, how how they work together and and how the compiler makes them work together to, to enact complex arguments and acts of representation and so yeah, I, I do this with two books. I do it with Khmer Din and Khtebad tawhid um, which are both yeah, they're they're both about a yeah, again, I'm looking for complex arguments in them. So so I chose them because they're both about a particular troublesome subject. al-Tawhid is about kind of key theological topics like free will and predestination and the transcendence of God. Again, that, that will keep you busy. And Kamel uh, Kemala-Din is about the um the occultation of the twelfth Imam. So again, a, a real um, vexed topic for Imami Shiism in this period. So yeah, they they both and, and they both reward a, an extended close reading for that reason that it's really difficult stuff they're grappling with. But also, <clears throat> this is a book about about hadith, and Saduk is above all an author concerned with hadith and what to do with them. And both of these topics are also, in a sense, really about hadith themselves. Kitab uh, is, al-Tawheed is a book dealing with theological questions, but it's also perennially dealing with the question of can we answer these questions through reason or can we do we have to answer them through text? And meanwhile, al Deen is asking, where is the imam gone? How do we access the imam? Which is obviously an inseparable question from, from the act of, of, of reading and compiling the imam's hadith. So yeah, they're they are both books of hadith that are also both books about hadith there's, there's there's that kind of nice meta element to them which which i hopefully get get something out of and and they're both they're both fascinating works and works that have been yeah um al in particular is, is is a really rather popular work of a sahu that, that lots of theologians have um have seen fit to to refer to and comment on um i guess i yeah, it's worth talking a bit more about how the kind of sustained reading process works. I mean, again, it's they're very long. It's, it's me going through a whole book. So um, yeah, the, it's it's quite detailed. Yeah, Kamala Deen is is the more complicated one and is just a, a fascinating book um, where Sidduc does all sorts of complex things. Um, yeah, Tawheed is the easier one to sum up. So yeah, just as an example of how throwing compilation criticism at, at a whole book works in very brief terms kateba starts off by telling us what a wants to do he wants to rebut people who say that the imam's hadith is is filled with theological fallacies and says things for example that that um god is well God can be likened to created things, which is something that that's you know, you're know you really not supposed to do, particularly in a Sadduk's intellectual context. So he sets out saying, I am going to defend the imam's hadith from these charges and prove that they give sensible answers to theological questions. Fine. That's the beginning of the book. The last chapter of the book is about 40 a hadith which all say in no uncertain terms, kalam is wrong, kalam is bad. Do not argue about what... Um, about the question of the nature of God. So Sadduk so, starts by saying, here are the theological questions that, that we're going to talk about. And at the end, there are a bunch of hadiths saying, do not talk about these theological questions. There's two ways of approaching this. Either Sadduk is just inept and, and you know contradicting himself without noticing, or again, giving him the benefit of the doubt and, and acknowledging that he might be trying to do something clever. Um, and indeed, this is very much, surprise, surprise, the conclusion that I come to. Um. Yeah, just to go into a bit more detail because it's fun. Um, so, section the first third of the book talks about the transcendence of God. Transcendence of God. The transcendence of God is a fairly easy question, particularly if, like Saduk, you're sort of talking in muatezili dominated circles. God is transcendent. He is not not transcendent. God is not like any created being, and so Saduk fairly straightforwardly says, "Here are a bunch of hadith that that say that." I win. Um, so he's, you know, it's a straightforward bit of dialogue with theological, well, the theological fashion, as it were, just just making the hadith agree with them, and and very much bringing a kind of rationalist, more atesly leaning. Potential readership um, on side and convincing them that the imams hadith really say the same thing that they do, but that 's only the first first third of the book, the second part of the book, um, which isn 't quite a third it 's a bit shorter it really suddenly changes, and suddenly it 's not just here are some nice hadiths saying the same things that mutesley do it 's weird hadith about how the universe is balanced on or the heavens are balanced on the back of a chicken which is standing on a rock, which is standing on a fish and Hadith explaining the hidden inner meanings of the names of God and Hadith saying how big angels' wings are. This is very different territory. This is territory that will really annoy a Muartesali reader who, who are very much um, yeah, disinclined to talk about this sort of thing. Um, it's It's not quite doing tishbi it's not quite actually saying what god looks like but it's really in very visual terms describing big cosmic mysteries like how large angels are um and also again using hadith to show that well using hadith which claim to be giving answers to things that human reason alone cannot answer what are the meanings of the letters of the alphabet you don't know the imams do so again the first third is really being apologetic and just saying look the hadith are nice they agree with rational theology second third absolutely not doing that showing that that the imams hadith tell you things that you will never know otherwise and so if you think that everything is subject to human reason you are wrong um so so the book doing different things in different places and in in the yeah the final third of the book it it deals with unlike the question of god trans god's transcendence it deals with the really difficult question of free will and predestination and um yeah to cut a long story short tries to persuade the reader that you absolutely shouldn't be arguing about this because the imams know better than you you should just piously submit um yeah that in summary (laughs) is yeah, just the kind of thing that I try to do. Again, making sense of the book, making sense of a of, of sadduk's theological position. But more importantly, I think just showing or trying to show what hadith compilation can do if we take it seriously. And, and above all, just really trying to assert that, yeah, just one—just picking one hadith out of a book like Tawheed and saying a sadduk says that the imam says this therefore that's what he believes there's so much more to it than that there is so much more to hadith compilation than than that um yes
1: this isn't a long book but there's so much in it and yes it's paint- short
0: that's another thing that i think we should emphasize yes
1: <laughs> um sorry carry on you were speaking yeah, but I just wanted to to say you paint such a compelling picture of this pivotal moment in Islamic, I mean, especially Shi'i history, and it's so nuanced. You're able to bring in so many different aspects. I was I was really blown away by this book you produced.
0: That's that's really nice of you to say. I mean, I was in, I was really lucky. I gave a sort of vague narrative of how I was interested in Shi'a hadith. I ended up working with Sudhu, not by chance exactly, but he just seemed like a good person to work on who no one had touched much. And he was just the right size. You know, 18 books is not unworkable. It's it's enough to be able to do some justice to the oeuvre as a whole. And so again, get a sense of, of the author as a whole and how he, or at least in terms of his extant writings and, and how he's interacting with his context. Um, yeah, uh, but uh, no, I, yes, I... It has left me with a residual fondness for Sheikh Saduq I even I, I I went on a yeah um, academic pilgrimage to to visit his tomb, which is still in in Shahre Ray, which um which is now it's it's rather Ray was once this great city um and now it's a suburb of Tehran and it's got a tube station um but but yes yeah, Saduq is 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 still there um and his you know people push um banknotes through the, the grill in his tomb so so he's making money for someone so that's that's good um, <laughs> yes
1: before I before I let you go there is one final question I'd like to ask which is a tradition on the new books network and that is what are you working on now
0: oh yeah sure um well uh yeah still doing things with with Shia hadith but also um not going beyond hadith exactly but um, looking at the things that are going on alongside them in terms of other ways in which Shi'i writers, well, Shi'is are representing and relating to the imams. So, looking a lot at devotional literature, looking at poetry, looking also at, at things like pilgrimage to the imams' tombs, and and getting a sense of, you know, if you if you look at Saduk's writings, he, he's very concerned to to orchestrate. The believer's relationship to the imam, but that's not a relationship which is just happening in books of hadith. It's happening in all sorts of other places. So yeah, getting a more hopefully holistic picture of that um, through this broader spectrum, primarily of, of devotional stuff of, of one sort or another. And yeah, that's that's going into a bunch of different things. The, the bit of it that that I hope will will be in an, 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 a book is um, uh, yeah a a project on on a poem called the Ali Nama, which is a um, a Persian narrative epic poem written in the late 11th century of the Common Era about Imam Ali, as as, as the name suggests. So, um, yeah, no, I've been having a lot of fun with that, just looking through yeah, the very different encounter with the imam that that, that work represents. And, yeah, um, yes, hopefully that will turn into something.
1: The book is The Words of the Imams, published in 2021 and not published in 2022 with IB Taurus. Dr. George Warner, thank you so much for your time today.
0: Thanks very much. It's been good talking to you.